Lord. That's a beautiful song. Thank you, Sherry, for playing that for us during the offering and preparing our hearts for God's Word. And I invite you to open your Bible with me at this time to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. As we continue our sermon series through Mark's Gospel, we have come to chapter 13 this morning. Uh, we're looking at verses 1 and 2. This chapter of Scripture is often known as the Olivet Discourse, and uh, the reason for that is found in verse 3 where it says, Sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Jesus spoke these things. And so the Olivet Discourse, this is in fact the longest continuous teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark by far. There were 39 sentences in this discourse compared to the second longest in Mark, which is only six sentences, found in chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. And so by the amount of space that's devoted to this one section of teaching, this continuous section of teaching by Jesus, the amount of space that's given to this automatically triggers for us the idea that this is significant. This is a very important thing that Jesus is teaching here, and so we need to pay attention. Very significant, but unfortunately there is a lack of consensus regarding how we need to interpret this chapter. There's a lot of what we call exegetical challenges before us. First of all, is Jesus addressing only the twelve disciples? And what he says in this chapter, is he just speaking to the twelve only, or is he talking to the early church? in the period right after his resurrection and so forth? Or is he talking to all believers of all ages? Because the way you answer that question will significantly impact the way you understand the entire chapter. Also, the things that Jesus predicts in this chapter, to what degree are they already have they already been fulfilled or are they yet to be fulfilled in the future? So again, that impacts the way you understand this chapter as well. The thing about it, though, when you study the Scriptures, when you study the Bible, you must diligently seek the intended meaning and application of the text. So in other words, when you are studying the Bible, everything you read, the author has an intended meaning. Why did the author say this? And also an intended application. What does the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what does he intend for me to do as a result of reading this passage of Scripture? You must diligently seek to understand that, regardless of whatever Scripture you are studying, and that applies specifically, as we will see, to this chapter. Let me invite you to stand, if you're able to at this time. We do this in reverence for the reading of the Holy Word of God. I'll be reading from chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Mark writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is true, your word that is trustworthy, your word that is powerful. God, help us today as we come into contact with this scripture. God, help us to begin 
to formulate a, a more firm understanding of what is being said in this chapter. Holy Spirit, you inspired these words through the pen of Mark, and now we pray that you, being the same Holy Spirit, would illuminate these words in our hearts. Help us to understand and apply. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ in a saving way, that through the power of God of not what I say, but through the power of your word and your Holy Spirit, they would come to know Jesus before it is too late. And God, we thank you and we praise you and we ask all this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated at this time. Due to the what we already spoke on earlier, the significant space devoted to Jesus' teaching in this chapter, and also due to the abundant confusion that many have in trying to understand this chapter, I felt that now would be an appropriate time for us to kind of pause and, and do just a brief study on interpreting Scripture, because I think it will do wonders for us before we move into the depths of this chapter First of all, I want to provide what I think are some helpful tips for interpreting the Bible. This applies to any and all Bible studies. Anytime you sit down and open your Bible and begin to study it, I think there are some important things that you need to have in mind. And here are just a few. There are more than just these, but I touch on these because they have a lot of direct emphasis on what we're going to be looking at. Now, I borrowed the first three points from Alistair Begg in full disclosure. Uh, who in one of his messages said that he borrowed the first two from another author. Uh, so uh, someone once has said regarding borrowing the work of other preachers, you can go ahead and milk the same cow, but you've got to churn your own butter. And so I hope I churn my own butter in the way I deal with these points that I borrowed from Alistair Bag. And the first one is this, beware interpretive anarchy. Anarchy means there's no government. Anarchy means everybody just does whatever they want to do. And regarding scriptural interpretation, it means that the meaning of the text is not left up to each individual reader to determine for themselves. In other words, it's not just, well, I come up with my meaning, you come up with your meaning, and she'll come up with her meaning, and even though those meanings are all different, maybe we're all right. That can't be what takes place when we seek to understand the Bible. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling, or some translations, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, there is a right way, a correct way to handle the Bible. When you are studying a passage of Scripture, there is a right understanding and there are wrong understandings. And sometimes to come up with a, a rightly divided word or an accurately handled word, you must be diligent as a workman to try to uncover and study and, and seek to understand what's at stake. So beware interpretive anarchy. In churches today, sometimes you'll hear in small group studies, the question asks, well, what does this mean to you? And then the next person, well, what does this mean to you? And What does this mean to you? When the question we need to be asking is, what does this mean? Question mark. 
Doesn't matter what it means to you. Doesn't matter what it means to me. What does it mean when the author wrote it? What was his purpose? Because words have meaning. And he didn't write this so that everybody could assign their own understanding to it. Beware interpretive anarchy. The second thing, beware interpretive tyranny. A tyrant is one who dominates, the one who has complete control. And when we think about that, we need to understand there are some passages of Scripture that are very clear. Other passages of Scripture, maybe not so clear. Some things are clear in black and white. Other things have more gray area. And we have to try to, to understand what it means. And so be careful when you come to uncertain matters to be overly certain. Because it's hard if, if you've got conservative scholars all across the board having different interpretations. Beware yourself saying, well, I have the right answer. For 2,000 years, people have debated what this means, but I have the right answer. And beware coming up with that idea in your own mind and following those who would try to assert that upon you. So when we come to chapter 13, I already mentioned there's a lot of different questions and a lot of different ways people interpret that. So I'm not going to come at this acting like my way is the only way. And we need to be careful being certain, overly certain, on uncertain matters. Now, with that being said, the third point comes up. The plain things are the main things. I've heard Alistair Begg say that many times in his broadcast, and I've even used that myself. The plain things are the main things. And also, the main things are the plain things. When we come to the Scriptures, when there are matters that are not quite so plain those aren't so main. And we come to the Scriptures and there are things that are very clear and very plain. That's what the author, uh, the author wants to emphasize. These are the main things. Don't make minor details majorly important. We need to focus on the plain things. Whatever the author writes and it's plain, that is his main emphasis. So when we come to chapter 13, there's some things in there that are fuzzy, but then there are some things that are very plain. Whatever are the plain things in this chapter are the main things that Mark is emphasizing. And that's helpful for us to understand how to interpret it and how to apply it. Then the final point, context is key. Context. In real estate, they say there are three important things, three important, important factors in real estate. Location, location, location. It's the same thing in biblical interpretation. Context, context, context. Because the way, the context in which you find a statement is the way that we use to interpret what the author is saying. And it's the same thing is true in our speech, is it not? When a person makes a statement, you need to know the context in which that statement is made. For example, a person says to another person, your car is on fire. Now, if that statement is being made by one individual at a car show to another individual, they might be saying, I really like your automobile. 
That is a very nice automobile you have there, sir. Your car is on fire. Or if your neighbor is knocking on your door late at night and says, there is smoke billowing out of your automobile, your car literally is on fire. It's the same statement, but the context determines what is meant in that statement. And the person making the statement, they know what they mean when they make that statement. And it's up for you when you hear that statement being made to determine what is the person saying this, what are they trying to imply. It's not up to the individual to say, well, I know you said this and I know you meant this, but I think it means this. When they had a meaning behind what they said. Context is everything when we study the Scripture. What has is, what is the author said right before this? What happens right after this? Where is this located in the Bible? Is this Old Testament? Is this New Testament? Is this poetry? Metaphorical language? Or is this history? More of an accurate statement? These things are important. Context is key. And that comes into play when we interpret chapter 13 as well. The thing to remember is that Mark had an audience and Mark had an agenda. When Mark sat down with pen in hand and the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to write, he had an audience in mind and he had an agenda. He wanted them to know something. And he wrote. And we seek to, 2,000 years later try to understand who he was writing to and what he was trying to accomplish when he wrote these things. It's very helpful. Even though God has preserved this for us today, so there is a secondary audience that the Holy Spirit had in mind, we need to always remember the author had an audience and he had an agenda. So with that being said, quickly some helpful tips for, tips for interpreting Mark. Specifically, what are some things we've looked at along the way? First of all, Jesus is God's Son. Chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus, the Son of God. It's very important. It lets us know who He is. Who He is. Secondly, Jesus is our Savior. What He has come to do. He is a man like no other with a mission like no other. What did Jesus come to do? He came to be our Savior. He came to die on a cross and to be resurrected. And then the third thing, Jesus is our sacrifice. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he come to do that? By giving his life as a ransom for many. So here is Jesus, the Son of God, who came to earth to be the Savior, and the way that he went about being the Savior was to be a sacrifice, a substitute, giving his life as a ransom for many. Marcus emphasized these points up to now. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, being sent to accomplish what humanity could not do on its own, and that is involved the cross interpreting Mark through these realities so now we come to chapter 13 and the, the really neat thing for us is whenever we study the Bible we come to chapter 13 
Guess what came right before that? Chapter 12. Chapter 11. Context is key. So when we come to chapter 13, we come to it not as, a, as an isolated text of Scripture. We come to this right after chapters 11 and 12 with the idea in mind that Mark is writing that Jesus is God's Son, He's the Savior, He came to be a substitute, a sacrifice. With these things in mind, we come to chapter 13. Well, in chapters 11 and 12, we already see Jesus came to Jerusalem, came to a fig tree, it had no fruit, He cursed it, went to the temple, cleansed it, basically condemning it, because the religious system had no fruit at the time. And then we read a series of conflict stories between Jesus and the religious establishment. Back and forth. Who, who has the authority? So after all of that in mind, we see that with their hostility to the Messiah, chapter 13 shows that there will be judgment for this rebellion. Judgments for rejecting the Savior. We also see in this chapter that the Son of Man, in the end, He will be vindicated. He will be vindicated. So we begin chapter 13. Mark spells out for us the scene here. We are reminded that this takes place in the middle of Passion Week, the last week of Jesus, right before He was crucified. Mark points out for us that Jesus has finished up His his discourse, his teaching, his confrontations in the temple. And we come to chapter 13. And the first thing I think Mark would have us to understand is that we do not trust in buildings. And we do not trust in buildings. These, these, beautiful, these beautiful sentimental structures cannot save. They cannot save. We read in verse 1, it says, As he was going out of the temple... So what Mark is writing in chapter 13 is immediately tied to chapters 11 and 12. He was in the temple condemning the religious establishments, being rejected by the religious leaders. He leaves the temple. And one of his disciples says to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Now this reference to the temple connects it with the prior two chapters and what do we know about Herod's temple in which Jesus was at it was a magnificent structure one of, one of the most wonderful buildings in all of world history in fact in the 1990's a stone was discovered that was part of Herod's temple and it measured 42 feet by 14 feet by 11 feet one stone estimated to weigh 600 tons this was one of the stones that was used in this building. You can understand how impressive this structure really was. But you know what? As impressive as it was, this was not the first time the disciples had laid eyes on it. As Jewish men, undoubtedly they had been to Jerusalem. They had been to the temple several times in their lives for Passover. They had been with Jesus already this entire week. So this was not the awestruck wonder of first laying eyes on something like the first time you go and see the ocean for yourself. They were very familiar. They had seen this place. But what this, what this re references here, they, there was an awestruck sentimentality. As they walked out of the temple, looking around, 
Jesus, look how, just look how beautiful. Look how magnificent this structure really is. It was symbolic of God's favor and God's blessing to the Jews. We've got this massive temple. And as long as we've got this temple, we know we are God's people. They were equating their relationship with God to this building. The sentimental emotionalism tied to the structure. And we do that too today. We think sometimes, well, I'm a Christian because I'm, I'm tied to this church. I, I was born and raised in this church or I've spent so many years in this church and when I look at this building, to me, this represents my relationship with God. We don't stop and think that it's not about a building, it's about a relationship with Jesus. Now, we spent some time yesterday in Louisville and I proudly wore my Kentucky shirt while I was there and uh, I got to thinking about it even last night I said you know why am I a Kentucky fan obviously it's because they got the best basketball program in the history of college athletics it's obvious duh but I also got to thinking about it it's like you know I was raised in a home where there were Kentucky fans in a family that were Kentucky fans and so it was just obvious then I went to school there, graduated from there. But you know, I got to thinking about it. Even though all that takes place, at some point a person has to choose. You know, I was raised in this family and I went to school there, but do I really want to root for this team or not? At some point, you've got to embrace, this is my team. Because not everyone who's born into a Kentucky family comes out being a Kentucky fan, do they, Andrew Stone? At some point, the individual must make that decision for themselves. You know, it's the same way with the Christian faith. Just because you're born in a Christian family doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you spend a lot of time in this church building doesn't mean you're saved. At some point, you as the individual must decide for yourself, is this real to me? Am I going to trust this Jesus to save me or not? It's not about trusting in a building or in the heritage that it represents. Secondly, do not trust in institutions. Institutions. As the, as the temple symbolized something to the Jews, there was also activity that took place. Religious rituals taking place inside that temple. And Jesus, through what he is teaching in Mark's gospel, is saying, going through the motions of religious rituals do, does not save you. Because even in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And even Jesus said that in his day, that you hypocrites. You're saying one thing and you're going out and doing another because your heart is not with me. So do not trust in institutions. The people there in, the, in Jesus' day, they, they were relying in this elaborate sacrificial system. These divinely appointed priests that were mediating between them and God. And they were saying, as long as we give our sacrifices and our tithes, and as long as we go to this temple and have this priest say a few words over me and say a few prayers over me, as long as I'm doing these things, God's pleased with me. And through what we learn in this chapter is, no, God's not. Just because you're doing 
some activity. Just because you're busy for God doesn't mean you are blessed by God. So do not trust in institutions to save you. Thinking that you are clean by your own standards does not make you clean. Sometimes I'll go to the restroom with Jaden being three years old and he's got his own idea about what it means to be clean, you know. I don't have to wash my hands this time, Daddy. Yes, son, you do. You're, you're not clean until I say you're clean. Just because you think you're not dirty doesn't mean you're not dirty. Not until the Father pronounces you clean. So going through the motions and thinking to yourself, well, I've done enough, doesn't matter what you think. What does God say? He's the determiner. Not yourself, not the institution, not the rituals. It's between you and the Lord, your personal faith. Thirdly, do not doubt God's judgments. His judgment. He is a merciful God, a compassionate God. He's also a holy God and a just God, a righteous God. You see, people in our culture today, they, they, want, to, they want to reject that idea of God. They emphasize the love, the acceptance, the forgiveness. Do what you want. God loves you. But then God in the Bible says, I am holy, I am righteous. You've got to come to me on my terms. Yes, God is loving, but God is also just. And a holy God must punish disobedience. You see, the statement made by the disciple in verse 1, and look at these wonderful stones, these wonderful buildings, there was a sense of permanence amongst the Jews regarding this temple and all that was there. And Jesus points out and says, Do you see these great buildings? Yes, Jesus, I see this. And then his next response comes as a shocking statement. And he says, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Well, what? Wait a minute. Time out. This is the temple we're talking about, Jesus. And you're telling me it's going to be destroyed. And not only the temple, but what's implied through that is the entire city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem would have defended the temple at all costs. And for the temple to be destroyed, that means the holy city must be destroyed. Wait a minute. But it wasn't the first time the temple or a temple was destroyed. In the Old Testament, 587 B.C., the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Now why was it destroyed? It was God's judgment against the sin of His people. And Jesus is pointing out it's going to happen again. Because God is just, He will not tolerate rampant sin. The temple was going to be destroyed because of the sinful hearts of the people. You see, it looked good on the outside. It was magnificent and beautiful. But really on the inside, it was rotten to the core. Jesus says, because God is just, this destruction is coming to the temple Fourthly, do not doubt God's sovereignty, His sovereignty. He is orchestrating His divine plan, and even the destruction of the temple was part of God's plan. It was not coincidental in saying, well, it's just rotten timing. We've got this Roman Empire over here. Any other time, if it wasn't for the Romans, 
Well, who do you think raised up the Roman Empire to its power? It was God, the raiser and the destroyer of world empires. It wasn't coincidental or just a stroke of bad luck. It was by God's sovereign design that this temple would be destroyed. And that's what Jesus is saying. In making this statement, it's not just a prediction, it's a prophetic statement that God is going to do this. And in fact, not only did Jesus know it was going to happen, what we've seen so far in chapters 11 and 12, Jesus himself, he's the trigger for why it happens. He came as God's Son, the Messiah, and they rejected Him. What else was God going to do? When God Himself came to His people and they received Him not. And instead of embracing Jesus, they were hostile to Jesus. It was God's sovereign design and Jesus says, not one stone will not stand upon another. And some people say, well, you know what? Jesus was wrong because there are still stones. You can go to Jerusalem this day and see the Wailing Wall, a section of the Western Wall where, where there are still stones stacked upon another. And Jesus was not being literal in this. He was being symbolic, metaphorical in this, saying the destruction of the temple would be complete, and it was. But you know, one of the reasons why the wall, the western wall a portion of it still stands is because the Roman Empire, the Caesar said, leave a section of this wall, this magnificent structure, to show and remind people how great this building was, and yet Rome was greater. But you know what? God in His sovereignty is even greater than Rome. And so while that wall still stands, it's also a testament that Rome came and went and is gone. But the kingdom of God stands forever. God is sovereign over all the events, even the events that we, from our perspective, see as bad things. Oh, that's just horrible. It's not a surprise to God. It's not a shock to Him. It hasn't taken Him off guard. That God could take even the worst events that mankind manufactures such as brutally crucifying a sinless man God can take what we see as evil and use it for his glory as he did with Jesus dying on the cross for our sins it's not about our perspective it's about his purpose the destruction of the temple was God's purpose Finally, do not doubt God's mercy. Even in the midst of destruction, even in the midst of the uncertainty that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would cause to the Jewish people, God was and God still is a God of mercy. We see Jesus making this statement, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus making this statement, the statement of judgment, through this, in hopes that people will listen up. Wow, you mean to tell me God's going to allow the temple to be destroyed? What do I need to do to make sure I'm not destroyed with it? You see, God could have just destroyed it without saying a word, but by the fact that He sent this revelation through His own Son means that God in His desire wanted some to listen and heed the word. 
and cry out to Him for mercy. That's why God revealed it was going to happen. First of all, to reveal His plan and His sovereignty, but secondly, to reveal His mercy, giving people every opportunity to be saved. Just like God preaching through Noah in the book of Genesis. The flood is coming. The flood is coming. Why did God say that? Because He wanted people to heed the warning, which they did not. But God in His judgments, always reveals He is a God of mercy. And God is glorified through His salvation in judgment. Every time we see God's judgment in Scripture, we also see salvation and mercy at the same time. So we do not doubt God's mercy. God used the suffering of Jesus on the cross to bring about His plan of salvation. But here we've got humanity, fallen, broken, sinful, wicked, rebellious, rotten to the core, and God says, you know what, I love you anyway, and I'm going to take some steps to fix what you cannot fix. Here, I'm going to send my son. He's going to live a sinless life that you could not live. He's going to die on a cross as a substitute for you. He's going to rise again three days later. And through Himself, His person, and His work, by trusting and surrendering to Him, you can be saved. I can fix what you can't, but you've got to come to me on my terms. And through the destruction of the temple, God is saying, the old way was not effective. Here's a newer, better way. The only way. Faith in my Son. The destruction of the temple means there's no more sacrificial system. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we don't trust in the buildings, we don't trust in the heritage, we don't trust in the institution and the, relig and, and the religion and the rituals, we trust in Christ. We don't doubt that God's a God of judgment, we don't doubt that God's a God of sovereignty, but also understand He's a God of mercy and He's waiting for you to cry out to Him to save your soul. And if you do that, the Scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when studying the Bible, even particularly this chapter, and I encourage you to go ahead and read through this chapter and try to wrestle with it yourself, think about context, think about authorial intent. When studying the Bible, diligently seek the intended meaning and application of the text. Mentioned earlier that we rented that bounce house for Bible school. We're going to use that again tonight. They send with you these great big metal stakes that you've got to stake in the ground. And the reason why is because if you don't have those, if a strong wind comes, and we've seen that in the news even some in the last few years, if a strong wind comes, it can pick those things up or they can go toppling over and, and injure or even worse, somebody who's inside or on the outside. So, you got to tether the bounce house to those stakes. There's a lesson in there for us. Stay tethered to the author's intentions. When you're studying Scripture, you can't go off, be an anarchist, say, well, it says this, I'm going to assign the meaning to this. Because Mark, when he wrote this, he really didn't have any meaning. That's baloney. Mark had a purpose. 
when he wrote chapter 13. You've got to try to stay tethered to Mark's intentions. And you find those through the context of everything else that he has written. Words have meaning. So do the events recorded and the events prophesied in this chapter. The way that Mark, what Mark says and the way Mark says it and the events described have meaning. And if God is sovereign in His Scripture, we must seek to understand what God wants us to know and how God wants it to apply to us even today. Let's pray together.